the Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the White Towel Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. I'll be joined this week by Ed Willis. You can subscribe, as usual, to our podcast through Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. Let us know what you like. Uh, you can also watch our videos at theprovince.com, VancouverSun.com, and, of course, read all our stories on the Canucks all year long. Ed, um, we are 50% less than last week, but I just want to say this is excellence concentrated. Yeah, no, this is our Nebraska. This is the stripped-down, lean, mean, uncompromising unplugged. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> tell him yeah that's right. Paul you, and Ed unplugged. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Patrick Johnson is off this week, Ed, or Ben Kuzma is on the road, so we will get into uh, the Canucks goalie situation, their mini slump, maybe the future Jim Benning, and I do want to talk about the Canucks uniforms because we didn't get to it last week and there was I don't think there was anything bigger that happened forget impeachment um, forget Don Cherry it was all about the skates so we'll finish up with that on this podcast joined as usual by our producer Supreme Juanita Eng so any uh excellent you have in the production we have been getting feedback uh, sound all that sort of stuff we're trying to keep this perfect so Ed let's jump right in um, we've been back and forth the last couple of weeks about the Canucks. Uh, they maybe defied expectations at the start of the season because they were deep. They were getting scoring. They had this wonderful farm system with proven NHLers to draw from. Goaltending. Yeah, Goal don't forget the goaltending, yes. Uh, and, and, and now, you know, they went from a stumble to, oh, maybe it'll be okay. Um, now, are these serious cracks or are these just the, the prevails of a young team in a very long NHL season? Can they be both? They can. Yeah, I, th- I think that's Expect- where... Where we are. That, well, okay. Again, you know, the, the consensus about this team seemed to be it's improved. It should be hanging around. It should be playing meaningful games in late March, early April. They should be hanging around a playoff spot. Ultimately, they're probably not ready yet just because their young players aren't ready to lead this team. And I think that's what we're seeing play out here. But the Canucks just do it in such dramatic fashions. They can't like sort of, you know, do a gradual decline or they, they, they can't just, you know, like win three, four games, lose two, three. They've got to fall off a cliff. And this is all against the backdrop of the last four years, right? So people's, you know, sensitivities are heightened. You know, they're <clears throat> looking. There's a big credibility gap in this organization is fighting right now. So all these factors are coming into play. They've invited all these ghosts from the last four years into the conversation about this team. And they would do well to nip it in the bud right now. And they've got five more games on this road trip. That Okay, so this is what is fascinating to me just and believe me, I'm going to get to this point by the end of it. Uh, you wrote a column on uh, Corey Schneider today and Roberto Luongo and the specter of the Canucks goaltending, that whole situation, whether it's cap recapture, they ended up turning into Bo Horvat. We know that era of the Canucks loved a good goaltender controversy. Through the start of the season, we were talking about how uh, Tyler Myers and JT Miller and J- uh, Ben, Jordy Ben were great signings that everything Jim Benning touched turned to gold, that Pedersen and Besser and Quinn Hughes didn't look out of place at the young. And you would often say, yeah, but the best story for the Canucks has been the goaltending. They were getting elite goaltending. It was winning their, them games. Now, Jacob Markstrom obviously had a very personal issue that took him out of the team for a while, obviously has to deal with and process things there. But what is the future of this Canucks uh, goaltending tandem, and I only I I only say this 
you know, anytime you see a big loss like 6-1, and I saw lots of calls last night, you know, get Markstrom out of there, you're going to damage his confidence. But everyone has up games and bad games or even just periods. What is the future of this goaltending town? Well, it's going to come to a head by, by the end of this season. Markstrom becomes an unrestricted free agent at, at the end of the year. There is the expansion uh, draft looming with, with, with Seattle. So they, they have a hard, hard decision to make. And uh, I, I mean... It's really hard sitting here, you know, in toward the end of November, trying to make a call on what the Canucks are going to look like in April. You know, all those factors that are in play. I, I, I'm just not sure if there's room for like a Jacob Markstrom contract extension. I, I there's a body of work there which which has been kind of fairly well established. It rises, it falls. There's been some high points. I think there was a presumption based on his play over the last half of last season, he would just pick off. And and, and if he could have maintained that over a whole season, boy, that, that just, that becomes really, really interesting. I think at that point, you have to extend him because you're, you're dealing with the sure thing. And too bad for Thatcher Demko. I'm just not sure the way things stand now and it looks it, – I, I, I don't want to – again, I'm trying to stay away from making these, these sweeping judgments because Markstrom could bounce back and he could have a great second half of the season and the Canucks might be right where they should be. I'm just not sure if that's going to be the case. And I just think of the the, the cost of extending him versus the, the, versus the potential of, of losing Demko. Um, I, I'm just not sure if the Canucks can go down that road. It's – it's an inter- you and I, we did some videos before this and, and you did talk about the fact that this is, it shouldn't be unexpected in the development of a young team. And you referenced it earlier. The young guys, this is not a question of their leadership, but being ready to carry the load for a whole season and lead this team to the playoffs and beyond. Um, but it, it is a curious question, is it not, that if you were to lose your starting goaltender at the end of the year for quote unquote nothing, um, is there a case to be made to actually ship him before the deadline? Yeah, there could be. There could be. The trading goalies is I know, really, it's, really it's tricky. Is very I know it, 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 it is, and I, I'm just sure for the for the sake of this conversation, we can say sure. And men, maybe you know, if they're out of it, uh, maybe they can get like a third round draft pick or a third or a fourth or something, something like that. Sure, get something for him, but but it's it, 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 it's a bigger picture than that. It's it's a bigger issue than that. I, I think the way these connects are, are are constructed, there there was a couple of things like the veteran players were supposed to insulate the younger players. You're supposed to have guys like you know J.P. Beagle, you know, being a presence in the lineup and calming things down. But I think, I really think the way they looked at this season, they looked at their goaltending, and goes that's what's going to carry us through 82 games. That's going to be the one constant. That's going to be the thing that keeps us competitive on a night in night out basis. And it certainly was that. For October, I don't think that was sustainable. You're looking talking about a you know 930, 930 plus save percentage, and that isn't sustainable over the course of 82 games. But 920 certainly is, or you know high 910s, and that that's where they need to be with uh, with their goaltending, and it, it hasn't been during this downturn. Saw a couple of smart asses on uh, social media this morning juxtaposing um, Tyler Myers' four assists. Uh, versus his six point six point million salary. Yeah. Um, this this is bound to happen whenever a team isn't winning. I made a joke in the video we did. You know, winning cures everything, so losing f's everything up. 
Um, certainly the case that Myers wasn't brought here to win an Norris Trophy or lead the scoring charts, um, but he's certainly was a great story the first couple of weeks of being solid. You had mentioned as well about the defense earlier, you know, w- when you add Ben and Hughes in there that they really had upgraded the defense. Has that stayed true to form? Again, if you if we're looking at the ebbs and flow of this team, it is a more veteran group. You've got Alex Edler in the mix there, presuming he can stay healthy. Tanev, you've got more experience on the blue line. As the team has fallen off, defense, offense, goaltending, all part of it, all equally culpable, or has the defense been okay? Yeah, yeah, well, no, I think they're all equally culpable. And I'm sitting here thinking, and I had ample time to think on that, and that, that lead, and the, the only guy That's can Ed's think way of, of telling me I talk too much. <laughs> the only thing I can think of over the, the only player I can think of over the last five games who's kind of is Adam Gaudet. He's you know he's been a real breath of fresh air. Not sure what they were counting on, but it looks like you know he's ready to play some kind of of, of ongoing role. role in this team, but everybody else. I mean, you can say the same, the same thing about Patterson, about 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 Besser, about Horvat, about the defense collectively, about the special teams. All those things were tr- such great stories through the first month of the season, and now they're all kind of you know they, they've regressed. Uh, so again, you know, we kind of come back to this point: is this just the blip? I mean, every team goes through it. Every team goes through you know the peaks and valleys over eighty-two young teams, especially. And the Canucks are certainly a young team, and you know they're 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 not a lead. I think we can we agree on that. So let, let's see where they where they are at the end of this road trip, and 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 if they're you know if this trend continues, then yes, by all means, take to the streets, panic, you know, beat beat your chest, light your hair on fire, because again, there is a credibility factor with this organization that they've got to rise above. There's this argument among, with young players that they'll never really achieve the the highest of heights that they could if they don't go, th- go through some adversity. Um, in that way, can this be a good thing for players like Hughes and Pedersen and Besser in particular, the young guys who are there's no doubt they're going to have to be superstars for this team to win anything. Well, yeah, I think that's part of the process. But again, I look at the way this team is constructed, and it was built to compete for a playoff spot this season. That's why they brought in the veteran players to insulate, to support. And how many times have we heard Benning say it? You know, we're going to bring in these veteran guys. We're not going to leave these young kids out to dry, make them think they have to do it all themselves. Now, having said that, the Canucks' best players, for the most part, are the young players. It's Horvat. It's, and I think we're almost at the point where we can stop talking about Bo Horvat as a young player. He's 24. He's been in the league. I think this is his sixth season. Uh, but but it, it, it's Patterson. It's Besser. It's Quinn Hughes. It, it, it's Horvat. And I don't know how you you know take out the Canucks roster and rank them, but they are clearly in the top six, eight players, all of them. Patterson is their best player. The so-called core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The core four, right? So, and uh, I was watching, there was, it was interesting, that 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 uh, Colorado game on uh, on Saturday, and what a terrific hockey game, just wildly entertaining. But I was looking at, you know, just measuring the Canucks' best players against Colorado's best players, and Colorado elite. I, I, I think they're going to be Stanley Cup contenders when they get every everybody back and everybody going in, 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 in the right direction. But just the way that, that, that McKinnon took that game over and Burkowski and, 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 and uh, the, the young kid Cal McCarr uh, on defense and kind of waiting for the Canucks' best players, their young guys, to do something similar because they need that now. They need them to step up. And it's, 
unrealistic to expect them to do it every night. But, you know, Daniel Sedin is one of my favorite quotes. You don't do it every night, but if you do it six nights out of 10, five and a half nights out of 10, you have a successful team. It's a great point because, you know, when you look at the Canucks and people do get excited, obviously, about the young players they have, you see a team like Colorado and people have been pushing Colorado as the next great thing for the last five seasons, it seems. But you see, when you see players on the level of Makar and McKinnon, you realize like, yeah, if you want to win a Stanley Cup championship, mm-hmm. you need a lot of things going your way because there's a lot of other teams in the same position as the Canucks. And th- and that's you know, and I think that's a fair question to ask about this young court. They're good, but are they elite? Are they capable of carrying a competitive team, a team that you know can make the playoffs and maybe challenge for a Stanley Cup? And that's kind of where the jury's still out on them. You know, they're good and they're exciting. I I wanted to write a column about this, and sorry, sorry for the segue here, but I was kind of looking at. So they're in a position where they have last year's Calder Trophy winner. Uh, the year before, they had a finalist in Besser, and Quinn Hughes, at bare minimum, is going to be in the finals. I think most people are conceding the Calder uh, to, 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 to Makar, but Hughes should be a finalist. I mean, you, you look at when you look at the Calder winners and the finalists over the last 20 years, boy, there's not too many stiffs in there, and there are some elite players, and there's some Hall of Famers, and there's some like absolute icons in the game. So it's reasonable to assume that what the Canucks have should be pretty close to that level just based on that, uh, whether or not they get their course, you know, that's it. But, but you know, Quinn Hughes just turned 20. Uh, Pedersen just turned 21. Besser, I think, is in the process of turning 23. I'm not not sure about that, but you know, I still don't think you can have a true measure of these guys for another two years. It, yeah, and it's funny. I know you've mentioned again, not spoilers, but you wanted to do something called "What Happened to the 30-Year-Old Hockey Player?" And you know, my smart-ass remark would be Jim Benning signs them as a free agent for much more than they're worth. <laughs> but it really is a young man's league more than ever, isn't it? Uh, forwards, yeah, yeah. All you have to do is look at the top twenty, uh, the top twenty scores among forwards, and the vast percentage of them are not only under thirty; they're they're twenty-six and under. And I, I it, it, it's funny. I, I should I should have filed that away, but I've got it in. The- the computer. The other interesting part to that, when you look at the top 25 scores among defensemen, vast proportion, or I'm sorry, sorry, the majority of them are actually over 30. So you've got kind of got this dichotomy, you know, young forwards, you know, where speed is, is so much a part of the young game. They're dominating, they're dominating the scoring race, but I guess there's still a case for like the wise old head on the blue line, you know, and these guys are still relatively mobile, but there's kind of an element to, to the way they think the game and the way they process the game that still shows up on the score sheet. I, I was going to get into something with Jim Benning because we'd been lauding him for all his moves uh, coming off in the offseason and obviously that's taken a bit of a hit so maybe he's back on the hot seat again but um, it's so fascinating to watch a Canuck game through social media. Uh, you know, I, I wonder is anyone actually watching the screen? It's just this constant flow of comments and something came up last night um, where people were criticizing Horvat for not, I guess, running around the hockey terminology is when the Canucks were down, uh, hitting someone, starting some trouble, trying to spark the team. I know that's perhaps is a traditional role of a captain. I don't know that's necessarily in his personality, but dovetailing with a goalie conversation to go back to Brian Burke's comments about this being a, a goalie graveyard. Is this an exceptionally difficult hockey market, or is it the same in any Canadian city? I think it's the same in any Canadian city. It, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, you could, 
that's, that's the Toronto Maple Leafs right now, uh, how they feel about that and the way they're covered and, you know, the pressure on, you know, a night in, night out basis. It's, yeah, you know, for, for, for sure. On oh, the midst of that game that the Leafs lost 6-1, I, yeah, yeah. I thought Babcock had been fired during the game, reading from people discussing who the next coach should be. But, but you know, it's a funny thing. You, you can't have it both ways because yeah. how many times have we heard general managers say, yeah, we want to play in a Canadian market. We want that accountability. You know, we want the players, you know, to, to be put to the test and, you know, you know, have the public scrutinizing every move because that's that's how you get better. Uh, recent history would suggest that that's <laughs> not exactly the case. And going back to 1993, but um, yeah, I, I, I it's kind of a factor in this. But the media landscape is just so weird now. It's just so fragmented, and and I, I I don't know like do players really pay attention to what's going on in Twitter? But you know like if I'm a coach or a GM, that's the first thing I do is just either or monitor a burner their account. Well, yeah. But, Can you but imagine why, Jim why, Benning why if he you, had like, a burner if I, Twitter you know, account? God, I, you know like I want to jump off a bridge when I look at the comment section sometimes <laughs> for for something I wrote, and I can only imagine what it's like. And these guys, you know, every move is being analyzed and overanalyzed within an inch of its life. But like like I said that. It's kind of like this, you know, the, this Twitter thing that's out there in the wilderness. So it, I, I understand a lot of this has to do, you know, with my view of what the media is and legacy media, no, and mainstream media, and all those things. So I think I think it's a fantastic point, you know, and we'll do a separate podcast on our our Canucks Fifty project, which is going back and looking at some of the old moments in, in Canucks history. And one of the things I'm doing is I'm going back through the old stories that are written. And I, you know, I remember this when I was still writing before I got into the uh, desk job side of it. The idea that you would actually watch a whole game before judging on it is gone. Like at yeah. the end of a, a bad first period, you are slamming the GM and the coach should be fired and this player should be benched and. By the end of the game, that story's completely changed. And that's unfortunately, it's the nature of the way the media is these days is you have to be instant. You have to react to how things yeah, are. In not, the not a lot of room for context no. and sober reflection and all the rest of it. I just wanted to pick up on that point about the media. Like I did this road trip with the Canucks recently, went to Chicago, uh, went, went to Winnipeg. So this was the media. This was, it, it, it's basically me, Jay Pat. Murph, the TV guy, the rights holder, and the, and then the radio rights holder, and, and that's it. That's the media. That's who is grilling, you know. And there's people just like holding their microphones there to get a you know story for their wire service, or they've been assigned uh, to the to the visiting team locker room by 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 the local paper. But that that's that that was it. It's it's basically the four of us, and that's the media covering the Canucks. That's the that's the this monster that's exerting all this pressure on, on this team. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I struggle with that. Travis, can you talk a little bit about the game? <laughs> you see him sweating with that one. You know, you're right with some of those generic microphones out there. It is it is interesting, though, and you're right. You take the good with the bad, the interest levels, the inflated broadcast rights, everything that comes along with playing in a Canadian market. It's just as we've talked about the goalies, and I was thinking about that legacy here, about the Luongo and Schneider. And before that, you go back to your, you know, your pot van and Garth Snow and all the weird things that happened with the Canucks goaltending and Brian Burke trying to blame the market for it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's any different. I, I can only imagine what they talk about in Edmonton uh, over the goaltending situation, or or even in Calgary uh, last year, where they had this great team, and yet goaltending seemed to be the thing that was left out. As we look, we we talked about this a bit last week, though. When you look at the this the rest of this month for the Canucks, 
I really am fascinated to see how they're going to handle it. I mean, it, blowouts happen, mm-hmm. but this is almost the the nature of of you can you can see where this team is going and how competitive are they in these games because when you look at these teams Nashville Washington you know they finish with Edmonton which I spoke of last week um I mean, every game in and of itself is just as how are these guys going to match up? How are they going to meet that challenge? Yeah, no, it, it, they're being put to the test right now. There's no doubt about it. And, and if they come out of this, you know, like like with one win out of their one win in six or something like that, like I'm saying, you know, they're just inviting back everything that's happened here over the last four years, and they should be strong enough to withstand that. I look at that roster, and I think anybody would agree it is improved. It's improved like across the board. The blue line's better. The goaltending with the emergence of Dam- Damco should be better. The forwards are deeper. They're more explosive. Pedersen's a year older. Besser's a year older. All those things are true. So let's see it. You know, let's see it. It's time to make a statement about where you are as a team and as a franchise because, like, like a backslide just isn't an option. Well, th- okay. So- and, 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 and if they are, then, you know, I'm I, I'm sorry, I grow weary at the thought of another, like, February, March, where they're playing meaningless games and you just kind of like, where do they, where do they go now on a nightly, nightly basis? So you basis? say backslide isn't an option. This is fascinating because I was going to ask you the same question I've asked you 47 times over the last three years because I just think it's a brilliant dynamic on the season. Any young team will have an organic growth in order to be competitive. But if a general manager feels his seat is getting too hot, there's always the chance of a panic move or mortgaging a bit of the future in order to push something over the line to keep job security or, or at least keep the momentum going. You can make the argument that that was the JT Miller trade yeah. and giving up a first round pick already for Jim Benning that he knew he had to win now. But if things are pretty rocky headed up to the trade deadline, do you see him being given license by ownership to maybe do something big? When you say rocky, I mean, I, 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 I might be able to entertain that scenario if they're a couple of points out of a playoff spot. Then maybe you make a push, but I mean, okay, if you're 12th and you're six points and there's three teams between you and that eighth play, why would you? That, that makes no sense. This is because the you're trying Paul, to save your job. No, no, this is it. No, that's not going to save his job. This is the team. This is the the one they started the season with. This is the this is the Canucks organization as it stands now. It's it's with Travis Green as the head coach. It's with these players. They made all their moves. They send a clear clear signal that this is the direction we're going. This is the expectation. And I know they steered away from making the playoffs, but it was like we're going to take a step forward, and we're at least going to be competitive. Of, and if they fall short of that, I, 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 just, I, just, I, I just don't know where they go. But but I, I what what moves are there out there for them? They, uh, they, they just don't exist. They made them. They made them in the offseason. They kind of addressed the weaknesses on this team to their best of their ability. And I I, I kind of agreed with the moves they made. I don't yeah, know. You can, Louis Erickson, Chris Tanev, and a second for Alex Ovechkin, you know. We, that that we, might we've do seen it. That one yeah, that, no, I'm just fascinated yeah. with this story, as you know, and – I know there's things you can say and things you can't uh, about, you know, the going back to Phoenix with Mike Gillis and the owner uh, during the trade deadlines, basically sitting next to the general manager, approving or vetoing trades like that. That is just not a scenario that can happen anymore with this team if it's going to be successful. No, it didn't. But but I think what, what I'm saying is I think that's already happened. I think when they fired Trevor, Trevor Lind and it was a clear signal that that. 
the, the, the story that, that Benning and John Weisbrod was telling them, we, can, we don't have to wait four years to be competitive. We can be competitive in, 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 a, in a year, year and a half if you allow us to make this move. Ownership signed off on that. Uh, okay. The, and that, they were being told what they wanted to hear, and they loved that message. They loved that story, and here they are. And they gave them the go-ahead to invest significant dollars this offseason in improving this team. So that's where we are, and that's why I say this is the Canucks. This is what this is. It's not going to change for this season, and they're going to be tight against the cap for the foreseeable future. So this is it, boys. Let's let's see what you got. So they are all Canucks. Um, so yeah, I did want to finish with some uniform talk just because, and I'm a geek for this stuff. I, I mean, I know you're a little bit. You you know you yeah, have you your might history. be talking to the wrong guy. No, but I know that. that but, but, let's, but I, let's but I go. also let's know you you have these great stories of having an autograph stick by the the Detroit Red Wings that you was taken and used to stake tomatoes. That you've told me of before. Yes, yeah, like yeah. you've been around the game for a long time. You got you were a fan as a kid. You get this. Um, the furor over these uniforms is hilarious to me. But I guess it says how old I am. I remember how great people thought going back to blue and green was and bringing back the stick and rink and how much people disliked the uh the 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 as G- the great jim taylor one called it the plate of linguini or the downhill skate whatever <laughs> yeah, you wanted yeah, to call yeah. it um but there's there's nostalgia weaved into it there's also that it's just starkly different it's not just a uniform tweak i mean it's completely different color set were you surprised a little bit at how wired up people got over this on the weekend? I, I, I was a little bit. Now, I saw them and I, I thought they were really cool. And there is something about that black sweater. There really is something that, 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 that just... In in the what, what, what am I? I mean, I'm going to try and make a point here, and I may be overreaching, but I think in the mythology of professional sports, there is something about that black, and I might be tying this way too much in with the Oakland Raiders, but it still says something. I I think all this stuff. I mean, to me, and I wasn't around Vancouver. I, my first year we were here was '98, so I've kind of like it's been the birthing orca uh, as long as I've been here but I covered those teams a lot my memory was those uniforms for the most part were either mocked or or derided or some combination of both so for them to sort of you know be accepted a kind of revisionist history for me right down to the v's right down to the stick in the rink logo and we were talking about before i i i have looked at that thing and for the life of me i can't figure it out i don't know what it's trying to say i've had it explained what, to me the and stick I, and ring yeah the stick yeah. in the ring it's just dumb it's a bad logo it's it's, a there's nothing logo. wrong there's nothing wrong with the colors but that thing in the middle when you've got to sit there and even when somebody explains to you and, you, and your best reaction is Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, okay, I can kind of see that now. That's not really the function of a logo. The logo is to make that statement and draw you right into the story it's trying to tell. And uh, the story that logo tells, unfortunately, is so much part of the Canucks story. It's, like, confusing. It's, it's Well, the funny thing it's is, directed. You, know, you know, you can say, we can sort of make fun of it, and, and you can say, oh, you know, talking to the wrong guy, but... When you look at other sports around the world, like merchandise can be a significant chunk of your revenue yeah. and any opportunity they have to sell, what, what, what does a jersey go for these days? Like, I mean, I know some of them, if you get the pro levels, it's upwards of $300, isn't it, with everything? I mean, I'm not of, sure. I haven't priced them. I see. I was going to say about 120 so. Yeah. Well, no, I think if you're getting the pro one with the names and numbers. <laughs> okay, uh, sure. But, right. okay. but regardless, yeah. there's there's a huge marketing opportunity there. Mm-hmm. We've talked before about Johnny Canucks sitting there. That, again, the fans just take this in another direction there's this hunger out there for it i i told you this theory i'd heard before about music that 
I've heard it said that the music that you listen to in high school is has a just an elevated place for the rest of your life versus any other music you like. And I think it's the same with uniforms. Yeah. I think all these people who during the 94 run, they were wearing this, they are now desperate to get this back. Um, much like, I guess, 10 years ago when they started to reintroduce the stick in the rink and the blue and the green, people love that as well. So I'm just, I'm, I, I come from that era in the, in the uh, mid eighties when I graduated high school. So I'm just waiting for the flying V to come back. Like, Okay, now we're going to reverse roles here. I, I'm going I'm to question you then. Okay, so so riddle me this, Batman. The original six uh, y- y- uniforms, I mean, they're beyond reproach. They are held up as the gold standard. Are they really that good? And what you said about, you know, that's when I first started watching hockey was during the original six era. And that Blackhawks uniform to me was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I still love it. And I love going back to Chicago and just for, just for that reason to, to to see that uni. But the same, you know, the the the, the classic Canadians uniform, the classic Rangers. The, the you know, we, I think we all know who the original six were. You never see, <laughs> never really hear a disparaging word about them. Were, were they that great, or they just belong to that period in time that people remember so fondly? I think it's fascinating that um, in these days of of you know, marketing houses and things having to go run through the, all these levels of approval in the league and graphic designers yeah, yeah, being yeah, paid yeah. millions of dollars that if you were to look at the Vegas Golden Knights or the, the Nashville Predators or the Florida Panthers and try and hold those jerseys up against who the hell came up with the Leaf or the Red Wing or or the Chicago Blackhawks uniforms <laughs> yeah. back in, yeah. you know, whenever yeah. it was the 1920s when they made these uniforms up. I just think it, it's it's magnificent that they do look clean, that they have history, the colors are there, and everything new that supposedly has all this expertise. Again, angry young or angry old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where cloud. the clouds. We, are, we are, but it's it's the new stuff can't compare. And I think that any sport you look at it, there's nostalgia is certainly part of it. Maybe it's just that it was clean and original at the time, and now everything is a copycat. The NBA fall, is the where worst. do you fall out on the flying V? Well, I loved it because okay. again, I, I put that in the I put that in the category of it being in my high school. But one of the things that I love with a uniform is that um, it should be unique. And if if you if you're forty feet away from someone and they know what uniform you're wearing, then I think it's awesome. Yeah. And there's so many generic uniforms out there now. Like honestly, I just no, that's look true. at yeah. it, it, and I think that goes through all sports. I, I just I thought it it was funny how and the Canucks definitely with an anniversary are cashing in on all of this. They're wearing the flying V for warm up, and then they'll change into and the the, the 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 skate has you know a limited appeal in the season, but they have their three other alternates. You know, at some point you just know they're going to come out with the Johnny Canuck one, and it's going to make them millions yeah. of dollars. See, now just but just picking up on that, like I I I really think kind of the mid to late 70s, early 80s was the golden age for uniforms and sports just because they were so weird and the ideas were so out there. And when I think of like, like, like the old Atlanta Hawks unis or the old Cleveland Cavaliers or, uh, you know, some, some of the, I mean, God, that we can kill a whole podcast on what the Chicago White Sox went through. I also think the Ottawa 67's barber pole unis are, are vastly, <laughs> vastly underrated just because they were so different. 
And so, and I, I grew up in Ottawa, so you know, I, I, I saw a lot of them. But no, you're you're so right. You know, everything is 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 just so processed now, and they go before study groups and they get the feedback and they come up with this thing that looks like it. You know, went through all these filters, and I just think you know there was probably like marketing people in the late seventies that sat down with some mind expanding drugs and this is what we're going to go with, and then the results were just so fantastic. <laughs> well, that's it. And digging through the archives, I did see you know the the fellow that created the stick and rank. Yeah. Um, his his original quote was something like. You have to use your imagination, but if you look at it, it's a bit of an abstract C. <laughs> you yeah. shouldn't have to use no. your imagination when you look at a logo. No. But they never actually used it as part of the word Canucks, which I think is one of the reasons. Which like, is oh, crazy because they, got, they nailed the colors. The yeah. colors are spectacular. Yeah. They could have done anything. They could have just like, put the freaking number on the front of it. That's all you have to do. But no, you got this thing that you're looking at. And I remember as a kid when they, well, what the hell is that? I know it's a, it's it, Okay, I get there's a rink, and then somebody's no, it's a C. No, it isn't. That's like the Montreal Expos logo. <laughs> the, For the, the life of me, the yeah, well, ELB, no, and it's enough. like, well, no, but it's really an M. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not taking the same drugs you are because I don't see an M in there anywhere. <laughs> uh, speaking of drugs, Ed, you have to run. Um, I'm not sure what that means, yeah. but, you know, yeah, it's yeah, a nice segue, segue anyway. Sure. So we will leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Again, subscribe through Apple Podcasts, and you'll get this broadcasting brilliance dropped in your, in your uh, phone every week. And we will be, yeah. Uh, subscribe uh, Ed's got a couple things coming up this week and we do continue our Canucks and 50 series uh, where we're going to be looking at Ron Settlebauer and his being the first Canuck to score 40 awesome. goals uh, Griffith's family buying the team um, and the switch to the Flying V and drafting a Stan Smeal are all specials we have coming okay, up I got, next I got, week I got to leave with this teaser because I, I actually heard a WHA story I'd never heard before so, 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 so when the Blazers came to town, their whole marketing concept revolved around fire, around firefighters, around it did the whole thing. There was so the girls dressed up in hot pants, of course, because you know. So part of the deal was the first star of every game got a fireman's helmet, right? So the Minnesota Fighting Saints come to town, and the immortal Mike Shaky Walton is first star of the team, so he gets his fireman's helmet. <laughs> You couldn't possibly guess where this is going to go. Boys go out. They get all lit up. They go back to the Century Plaza. Mike Mike Walton has his fireman's helmet on, which he views as an opportunity to pull the fire alarm. So he pulls the fire alarm. Fire trucks come racing up, and Mike Walton is there in his fireman's hel- helmet to, to 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 greet them. So I mean, the, the guy's relating this story to me, and I go, "How did he end up out of jail? And how did he end up not going to jail?" And the guy says. That uh, was a different time. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. And that covers all, all, the, all these stories oh, we're writing so about. Going yeah. back and looking at all this other stuff. So you can get all that great stuff in the next week. And uh, you, we will be back next week with another podcast.